Chapter 28 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter 28 An Important Interview Doubts and Fears. Michael's first recollections on opening his eyes were not of the clearest kind, and it required at least a minute's looking about him after seating himself upright in the cart before he could perfectly understand where he was or why and how he got there. But no sooner did all the events of the day before rush back upon his mind that he felt conscious of being near the most important moment of his life. Again he closed his eyes, but not to sleep, and fervently prayed that whatever might be the tidings which awaited him, he might have strength to receive and bear them as he ought. Then, springing from his resting-place upon the ground, he inquired of a lad near him the way to Mr. Bell's, and set off to follow the directions he received with no greater delay than was necessary for a short halt beside a little streamlet on the way, which offered a welcome opportunity of washing his face and hands before he petitioned for admission to the presence of the good clergyman, to whose words he looked forward with an intensity of interest which almost amounted to agony. Though it was still early, Mr. Bell was already in his garden, and when the gate opened, it was himself who turned towards it to learn the errand of the young stranger. Michael felt at the first glance that the gentleman who stood before him was the person from whom he was to learn whether the brother he had so long mourned as dead was still alive, and he trembled so violently from head to foot that he could not articulate a word. "'What ails you, my lad?' said Mr. Bell, gently laying a hand upon his shoulder and looking earnestly in his face. You have not the look of one who has done mischief, or else I could fancy that you had some terrible tale to tell. Come into the house and sit down, my boy, for it is very clear you are not quite able to stand. Michael, still silent, followed his considerate host into the house, and thankfully received from his hands a glass of water, which did him good service, for in a minute or two he was able to say, I want you to tell me, sir. May God give me strength to hear your answer, let it be which way it may. I want to know if Edward, if my brother Edward Armstrong, is alive or dead. But notwithstanding Michael's torturing eagerness to hear the answer, he put his hand before his eyes, because he had not courage to bear the look that might forestall it. Your brother? Edward Armstrong, your brother? Who then are you, boy, in the name of heaven? said Mr. Bell eagerly. I am Michael, sir, Michael Armstrong. But, oh, for pity's sake, tell me what I ask. "'Yes, boy, yes. But compose yourself, my dear fellow. Edward is alive, and your friend Fanny Fletcher, too.' Michael sunk from his chair upon his knees, and, lifting his clasped hands towards heaven, seemed breathing thanksgivings for this assured confirmation of tidings which, till now, he had not dared to believe true. But, startled as he was, the anxiety, the excitement, and the fatigue of the preceding night and day had been more than enough for him and at the moment when every thought would have been joy and every sensation delight, he ceased to think or feel at all. The color forsook his lips, his eyes closed, and, greatly to the dismay of Mr. Bell, he sunk prostrate on the floor. No time was lost before the usual means of restoring suspended life were administered, and the uncared-for factory boy, the mountain-braced Westmoreland shepherd, lay extended on a sofa, with essences at his nose and the opening of his dark eyes watched for, as tenderly as if he had been a delicate young lady. A deep-drawn sigh announced to Mr. Bell, who stood by, anxiously watching him, that his remedies had been successful, that the boy so long mourned as dead was really and truly alive, and a very handsome well-grown fellow into the bargain. 
This is a strange history, Michael, as ever I chanced to hear, said he, taking the boy's hand and ascertaining that his pulse again made healthful music. Why, we have all been mourning for you as dead for this many a year, and now you drop down as if from the clouds, and by what I can make out, have been fancying on your side that Edward was dead too. The first thing to do, must I think, be to give you some breakfast, and then, if you are strong enough, you shall tell me how all this has come to pass. Full as his heart was, and eagerly as he longed for the conversation in which he had so much to learn, as well as to tell, Michael gratefully submitted to this arrangement, till having received from the hands of the deeply interested Mrs. Bell herself the refreshment he so greatly needed, he felt his young strength return, and if he trembled as he turned his eyes towards his kind host with a look that seemed to say, Now, sir, I can talk to you, it was from eagerness, not weakness. Mr. Bell understood the appeal, and well inclined to answer it, said, Having told you that Edward is alive and well, my dear boy, and I only wants the sight that I see now to make him perfectly happy, I think you ought to be satisfied, and not expect me to tell you any more till my curiosity is gratified by hearing your own history. How in the world did it happen, Michael, that when Miss Brotherton went to the Deep Valley Mills on purpose to look for you, she should come back persuaded that you were dead, though the charming little girl she brought away with her had seen you there and seemed to know you well? Michael Armstrong told his own story more succinctly than I have been able to do it, and probably much better too, for he beguiled Mrs. Bell of many tears as she listened to him. And bare as the sad narrative was of events, her husband also hung upon every word of it, as if, contrary to the theory which seemed to be pretty generally established in his neighborhood, he thought the feelings and the sufferings of the factory child might be capable of exciting interest. When the history had reached its conclusion and Michael had fairly brought himself into Mr. Bell's breakfast parlour, he paused, and with a very eloquent look of entreaty said, Now, sir, may I not listen to you? Yes, my dear boy, replied his new friend, in the happy tone with which a kind heart inspires words calculated to give pleasure. Yes, you have much to hear, and a wonderful story it is, I promise you but it shall be all true, Michael, so don't fancy that I am telling you a fairy tale, and that Miss Brotherton is the fairy. But first tell me, before I go any further, what sort of a boy was your brother Edward when you saw him last? Oh, sir, he was the dearest, kindest fellow that ever lived, replied Michael, his fine eyes beaming with tenderness and well-remembered love. But what sort of a boy was he to look at? demanded the clergyman. Michael closed his eyes as if the better to contemplate the inward picture engraven on his memory. His face was a sweet face, said he, but his dear limbs were crippled. He was a slighter boy than me and could not stand the labor of the mill. And I fear, I fear, he added, shuddering, that my poor Edward must live and die a cripple. What is your opinion about that, my dear? said Mr. Bell, turning to his laughing wife. Why, I am inclined to think that Michael will have some difficulty in identifying his brother when he gets to him, she replied. Instead of being a cripple, resumed Mr. Bell, I suspect that your brother is a handsomer fellow than you are, Michael. Everything promised well for it when he took leave of us, and since then my wife has had letters from Miss Brotherton which do not speak of any falling off in his improvement. Nay, said the lady, I have had more than letters to speak of it. "'Shall I show him Miss Brotherton's drawing, George?' "'Most certainly, my dear. "'It will save me a vast deal of description, "'and you may trust to Miss Brotherton's pencil, Michael, "'as implicitly as to my words, "'for there never was a more faithful limmer.' 
Mrs. Bell then opened a little portfolio secured by a key, and drew thence a drawing in watercolors, the composition and finish of which would have done no discredit to a professional artist. How the stout nerves of the young and athletic Michael trembled as he received it! At first his eyes seemed to fail him, the outline, the coloring, the whole group was indistinct. I am a fool, sir, he said, letting the hand that held it drop beside him. I positively cannot see. I don't much wonder at it, replied Mr. Bell, but try again, Michael, it is worth looking at. And so thought Michael, as he once more placed it before him, and gazed upon it with an eye as eager as that of Surrey might have been, when contemplating the magic mirror that was to show him what he loved in life and limb. The drawing represented a terrace walk, along which ran a handsome stone balustrade partially covered by vine-leaves, while beneath it in the distance stretched to a far horizon a glorious river careening through a rich and varied landscape. All this was fair to look upon, but the boy's eyes saw it not. They were riveted upon two figures that occupied the foreground of the terrace. One of these was a slender girl, whose bright curls seemed just released from the restraint of a straw hat which she held in her hand. But though the head was thus uncovered, the features were not visible, for the hand was placed upon the balustrade over which she hung, as if in earnest contemplation of some object below. But the head of the other figure, a young man of some twenty years or so, was so turned as fully to meet the spectator's eye. And if the pencil that drew it flattered not, it was one of the handsomest that nature ever formed. The large, expressive eyes, beaming with mingled softness and animation, were directed to some object out of the picture, but at no great distance, for the sweet smile that played about the mouth seemed to indicate that he was listening to pleasant words from some well-loved companion. The figure of the young man thus represented was tall and graceful. His dress was the light summer garb of a southern climate. An open book was in his hand, his straw hat lay at his feet, beside which stood a basket of newly gathered grapes and a small Italian greyhound, its bright eye looking in the same direction as his own, completed the group, which spoke in every part of it a sort of graceful ease and enjoyment that it was very pleasant to look upon. "'Can this indeed be my Edward?' said Michael at length, after a long, silent examination of the drawing. "'How beautiful! How noble! How happy! How healthful! How intelligent he looks! Is it my own dear, pale, sickly brother? Can this be true?' "'As true as that you stand there to look at it,' replied Mr. Bell. "'Is there nothing in the face, Michael, that recalls your brother to you?' "'Yes, sir,' he replied quickly. "'The eyes and the sweet smile are so like my own Edward, "'that strange as it is to see him so healthy, tall, and graceful as he is represented here, "'and looking, too, so greatly like a gentleman, "'I do quite believe that this was never drawn for any one but him.' for never, never since I saw him last have I seen such eyes or such a smile as that. You are quite right there, Michael. The face is one not easily forgotten, and I can trace it here, notwithstanding all the change of age and circumstance. But who do you think that slender girl may be? It seems a pity not to see her face. The form, the pretty attitude, the bright waving locks, all plainly tell that it must be worth looking at. Can you guess who it is? "'I suppose it is Fanny Fletcher,' replied Michael, colouring. "'And there, too, you are quite right. "'But does it not puzzle you to think how all this has been brought about? "'How does it happen, think you, "'that those whom you remember in a state so different "'should now be living as you see them here, 
looking as if their existence were made up of sunshine and sweet air. And now again I shall answer, as they say the fortune-tellers do, replied Michael, smiling, by telling you, sir, what you have before told me. It is Miss Brotherton, whose name I well remember at Dowling Lodge. It is she who has done all this, and may God bless her for it. But yet truly it still seems a mystery. How did it happen, sir, that this rich young lady should have left her grand house, and all her fine acquaintance here, to go into foreign countries with two poor factory children? You may well marvel at it, Michael, for it is no common act. But will you not think it is something stranger still, if I declare, as I can do with all truth, that you are yourself the primal cause of it, said Mr. Bill. You look incredulous, yet so it is. Do you remember the play, Michael? Sir Matthew's play, cried Michael, burying his face in his hands. Oh, sir, can I ever forget it? It was a vastly gay thing, too, returned Mr. Bell, smiling, and all the performers were exceedingly admired. But you do not seem to remember it with any great pleasure. Pleasure, Mr. Bell, returned Michael with something like a groan. I have suffered a good deal, considering how few years I had lived before my sufferings were over. But, excepting the coming home to my mother's and finding her and Teddy gone, and, as they told me, dead, both dead, excepting then I never was so very, very wretched as while Sir Matthew was making me practice for that play. Do you remember the very night it was acted when you and he and Dr. Crockley were in a room by yourselves, somewhere behind the scenes? Do you remember, Michael, his beating and abusing you because you had cried upon the stage? As well as if it had happened yesterday, replied the young man. I had to utter false and lying praise about him, and something I am sure there was about loving him as well as my dear mother. That I could not bear. And then it was that the tears burst out, though well I knew what I should pay for shedding them. They were the luckiest tears that ever boy wept, so pray do not quarrel with them, replied Mr. Bell. While you were paying for them, as you call it, in the green room, Miss Brotherton by accident heard and saw everything that passed. And from that hour she has never forgotten you, Michael, though more than seven long years have passed, if I mistake not, during which you have never profited by it in your own person. I will not enter now into any description of what her feelings were. An accident prevented her seeing your mother immediately, and when she did, my poor boy, you were already beyond the reach of any help but she never ceased to inquire, by every means in her power, whether you had been conveyed, and it was then she came to me, so it is to you I owe the pleasure of knowing one of the purest and noblest-hearted human beings it has ever been my lot to meet with. It was in consequence of, not information, for I had none to give, but of a hint I gave her as to the nature of the place that she set off on her exploring expedition to that horrid den of sin and suffering, the Deep Valley Mills in Derbyshire. There she met the pretty creature whom she has since adopted. Little Fanny believed that you were dead, and this was the dismal news they brought to Hoxley Lane. Your poor mother, Michael! But let it comfort you to know that every want and every hardship were relieved from the first hour that Miss Brotherton saw her, and she died with the comfort of knowing that her poor Edward would never have to labor more. Soon after her death, Miss Brotherton took your brother to London for the purpose of consulting the most able surgeons about his lameness. Their science did not fail them, for they predicted that with proper treatment he would outgrow it, and so he has, completely, being at this time not only the graceful, well-made personage you see him represented there, 
but healthy, active, and gifted, as I hear, with a most rare intelligence. For reasons which it is not very difficulty to guess, Miss Brotherton thought that she and her young protégés would find themselves better off on the continent than in Lancashire, and from the time she first left Milford Park to visit London she has never returned to it. The place is now sold, and Miss Brotherton has no longer any possessions in this neighbourhood. And now, my dear boy, I think I have told you all, excepting the exact spot where they now are. And this I cannot do, because our last letter from her informed us that they were just setting off upon a tour through Italy. She resided some time ago for one year at Paris that the young people might acquire the language. But for the most part, Germany has been their home. It is there that your brother has received his education, and I think it very probable that it is there they will finally settle. For it is in the far-famed valley of the Ringhau that Miss Brotherton has purchased a spacious mansion, large enough, as she tells me, to accommodate half a dozen rich English families, with extensive and very beautiful grounds around it, and all capabilities for being converted into a delicious residence. Here he ceased, and it was several minutes before poor Michael was capable of uttering a single word in return. The mention of his mother, the hint that she had not long survived the hearing he was dead, wrung his heart anew, with grief as fresh as if he had lost her yesterday. And, spite of his manly stature, the tears flowed silently but plenteously down his cheeks. Yet, even when he had conquered this, there was something so surprising in the present situation of his brother, something that, notwithstanding all the fond yearnings of his own heart, seemed to place them so widely asunder that the joy which Mr. Bell looked for was less obvious than an expression of almost timid embarrassment as he said, "'Alas, sir, what shall I seem like amongst them?' You speak of my dear Edward's education in Germany, of his learning a foreign language in France, while I, my best, and truly my only education, has been looking at nature from the mountain side as I kept sheep, and all my learning, what I have gathered from a few strangely mixed volumes that I have bought or borrowed during the last four years. How can I present myself before them? How they can welcome me? Be so kind, my dear said Mr. Bell to his wife, without immediately replying to Michael's question. Be so kind, my dear, as to find Miss Brotherton's last letter for me. I think you took possession of it, and I doubt not have preserved it among other treasures of the same kind. Mrs. Bell immediately left the room, and presently returned with the letter in her hand. Take that letter, Michael, said Mr. Bell. Take it into the garden, my dear boy, and read it alone and without interruption. You will find a shady seat where you may be very comfortable, and when you have finished the perusal, come into my study, and tell me what you think of it. Michael's hand trembled as he took the letter, and silently obeying the instructions he received, he walked out to an embowered spot where he could not be seen from the house, and seating himself on a garden bench perused the following letter with a mixture of trepidation and eagerness which may easily be imagined. Have you thought it long since you last heard from me, dear friends? I hope you have, for it has seemed very long to me since last I wrote to you. But what a thief of time is occupation! I have been so very busy in drawing plans for the repairing and beautifying my old castle, you would certainly call it a castle in England, and so constantly called upon by Edward to give my approval to his carte du voyage for our Italian tour, and by Fanny to sanction her plans for our future flower garden, and by Mrs. Tremlett to settle some point of enormous difficulty respecting the packing up of the things to be left, and the things to be taken, that though day by day I have told myself, for at least a month past, that I was behaving most abominably in not writing, 
I have never before found a leisure hour to set about it. But if I have not written, I have drawn for you. Witness the view for my beautiful terrace, which I shall send with this letter. I wish I could have put my own fizz in it to show you how healthy and well I look. But unfortunately, you know, there is no point of sight from which an artist can catch a peep at himself without the aid of a looking-glass, and though I pretty nearly live upon my terrace, I have not yet taken either to sleeping or dressing there, so no mirror was at hand. But instead of myself, I have given you Edward. Sometimes I do feel a little glorious as I look at him, and remember the delicate pale face and feeble limbs that greeted my first sight of him in Hoxley Lane. He is now, but you will laugh at me if I attempt to describe him in words. The sketch I send is no bad likeness, and may give you a tolerably correct idea of the alteration that has taken place. As to my sweet Fanny, though the attempt would have been a bold one, I meant to have given you a likeness of her too, but her attitude was so picturesquely pretty as she stood, unconscious of what I was about, that I contented myself with the back of her curly head. You shall have her face another time. How can I be sufficiently thankful to Providence for having redeemed my isolated existence from the state of uselessness in which I vegetated before I met Edward Armstrong and Fanny Fletcher? Not an hour now passes by me without leaving behind it some trace of my having advanced in the precious labor of making these two beloved beings happier. Were they merely ordinary young people, with average hearts and average capacities, I should still bless heaven with a grateful heart for having permitted me to be the means of changing their condition, from one of great suffering to a life of innocent enjoyment. But as it is, I know not how to be thankful enough. It seems to me, dear friends, however much I increase my acquaintance with other human beings, that Edward and Fanny are the noblest creatures in the world. Is it that suffering, being of necessity a part of our earthly nature, we cannot arrive at the perfect development of all our faculties without it? Where it arrives in later life, perhaps, the effect, though inwardly healthful, may not show fruits so beautiful. There is in the minds of both of them a brightness of intelligence, and a delicious calm of temper that I have never met elsewhere. It is as if a heavy weight that had been painfully crushing them was suddenly removed, causing all the ordinary sensations of human existence to be felt as a luxury. Young as they are, they are full of instruction, right thinking, pure feeling, and a firmness of integrity which it is the best joy of my life to contemplate, and all this built on so firm a foundation of religious principle that I can have no fears for its endurance. After this, it would be very weak and womanish folly to dwell much on their personal advantages, or even on the peculiar charm of their manners and conversation, yet they are gifts which bring a charm to which it is difficult to be quite insensible. Is it not strange, dear friends, that being such as I describe them, and having passed so large a portion of their lives together in the mutual contemplation of each other's excellence, is it not strange that they should not by this time be lovers instead of friends? Yet such is not the case. That they love each other sincerely is most true, and I could give a thousand proofs that either would at all times gladly renounce amusement or pleasure of any kind for the sake of the other, but they are not in love. If I did not believe it impossible, considering the age of the parties when they parted, I should think that Fanny's little heart had been buried in the grave of Michael, the poor little fellow, whose early sufferings under the tender patronage of Sir Matthew Downing first roused my sleepy existence into action. She cannot yet hear his name mentioned without betraying a degree of emotion that it is painful to witness. 
and when, as sometimes happens, Edward is taken for her brother, it seems to delight her. Yes, yes, indeed he is my brother. I love him as much, and if you ask him, he will tell you that I am to him a dear and loving sister, I have her say, and if Edward had been asked, I do believe he would have answered and truly too, in the same strain. Edward is now twenty-one, and my pretty Fanny nineteen. But, notwithstanding the variety of captivating young people with whom they are perpetually associating, I cannot believe that the heart of either has yet received any tender impression. Though in more cases than one, I have had reason to know that they have not been looked at with indifference. Yet sometimes I am puzzled about Edward. I think he is less gay and joyous than he used to be. At any time, indeed, the name of Michael has ever been sufficient to bring an expression of profound and hopeless sorrow upon his fine countenance, which it wrings my heart to see. For, alas, how vain must be all my affection, all sisterly love, to help him there! But incontestably of late his spirits have been less gay than formerly. This, to tell you the truth, is the only drawback to the happiness I enjoy. Could Fanny and Edward learn to forget poor Michael, I should hardly have a wish left. But I have little hope of this. His memory, I truly believe, is too deeply engraven on their hearts for any subsequent offence to efface it. Sometimes, when I meditate on this sadly enduring sorrow, I fancy that I should rejoice if they were both of them to fall in love as a cure for it. But alas! Whenever that happens, what a breaking up of happiness it will be! for I can hardly hope to find a continental wife or husband for my adopted children, sufficiently English in habits and character, to permit my inviting them to make a part of my family. Yet marry abroad they must, I think, if they marry at all. For I will never by my own free will expose them to the mortification likely to ensue upon such an explanation respecting their origin, as must be the consequence of any matrimonial negotiation in England. On the continent, the ample fortunes they will possess, with their good education and great natural advantages, will suffice to make them very desirable alliances to almost any one. But these are anxieties, which though they must come upon me sooner or later, I suppose, I shall endeavour to push from me, and forget as long as I can. And now I must bid you farewell, for during the next month or perhaps longer, our course will be directed by circumstances that we are not fully acquainted with as yet but I will write as soon as I can tell you with certainty where your letters can reach us. Mrs. Tremlett, Edward, and Fanny send affectionate greetings to you all, and should it fall in your way to see or convey a message to poor Martha Dowling, I will beg you to tell her that I shall ever remember her with great affection and esteem. Adieu. Ever dear Mr. and Mrs. Bell, your grateful and affectionate Mary Brotherton. Did one reading of this epistle suffice for Michael? Did two? did three. It is difficult to say, for he remained in a shady and obscure retreat so long that Mr. Bell, notwithstanding his previous determination not to disturb him, began to think that it was time to see whether all the good news it contained had not killed him with joy. And when he reached the bench, Michael still sat with the precious letter in his hand and his eyes fixed upon it, so that it appeared as if he had not yet finished the perusal of it. Michael looked up as Mr. Bell approached him, and immediately rising stepped forward to receive him. It was not, however, any wild excess of joy that his features expressed, but there were traces of very strong emotion on his countenance, and his hand trembled as he stretched it forth to receive that which was kindly extended towards him. "'You have remained too long alone, my dear boy, in this cold nook,' said Mr. Bell, 
taking the young man's arm within his own and leading him towards the house. "'What makes you look so pale, Michael? You are not ill, I hope?' "'No, sir, I think not,' was the reply. "'But I can hardly tell you how I feel. At one moment, the idea that my dear brother still lives, and that it is possible I may again see him, hear him, hold him in my arms, seems to make me too happy to breathe. And then again, a sort of doubt and sadness takes hold upon me, and I do not feel as if it were possible I could ever make one in the happy party on the terrace. And why not, Michael? demanded Mr. Bell, somewhat reproachfully. After reading that letter, can you find it in your heart to doubt that the party on the terrace would receive you joyfully? Will not the happiness be too great? cried Michael. Oh, how can I deserve it? Not by doubting the goodness or the affection of those who love you, replied Mr. Bell. But come, I must not preach to you now, I believe, for I suspect you are not in a condition to profit by it. Come into the house, sit down, and grow reasonable as fast as you can, and then we will talk of the time and the mode in which you must set off to join your family. For your family they are, and will be, Michael, you may depend upon it. Can I throw myself upon Miss Brotherton, sir, without her permission? demanded Michael while his paleness was changed for a moment into a glow of the deepest red. "'I am afraid you have a very proud heart, Michael,' said Mr. Bell, looking at him, "'and that is not right. It is not Christian-like.' "'Oh, Mr. Bell,' replied Michael with strong feeling, "'have I not already eaten the bitter bread of dependence, and can I at my age, and with my power to labor, submit to it again?' You have a notion, then, young man, that benefits conferred by a Sir Matthew Dowling and a Miss Brotherton are the same thing, said Mr. Bell. Not so, sir, replied Michael. I cannot doubt that she who wrote this letter must be both great and good, and I well know that Sir Matthew Dowling was neither. But I only know Miss Brotherton as one of the fine folks visiting at his house, and I cannot feel that I should like to start out suddenly upon her from the tomb as it would seem appearing to expect that she should adopt me too, as she has done my brother Edward. Well, Michael, I must not blame you for this, because I believe it is very natural. Yet, nevertheless, I feel quite sure that you will forget all your notions when you see Miss Brotherton, returned Mr. Bell, smiling. Michael shook his head, but he returned the smile, though rather languidly. And when they had reached the house, and were again seated in the study, he said, what does Miss Brotherton mean, sir, by calling Miss Martha Dowling poor Martha? I trust that no misfortune has befallen her. She was very kind to me, and I shall always love her, although her name is Dowling. I believe she deserves it, Michael, returned Mr. Bell. And by the by, you have it in your power to show your love and do her a great kindness by the very simple process of letting her know that you are alive. Poor girl! She has suffered dreadfully from believing that she caused your death by the advice she gave to your mother about signing your indentures, and I fancy that letting her know that you did not perish in consequence would be conferring a real blessing on her. Dear good Miss Martha, exclaimed Michael, how well do I remember the walk we took together when she went to Hoxley Lane to give my dearest mother that advice. She did it for my good, and for my good it would have been, if what she advised had been the thing she thought it. I owe her still, notwithstanding the misery she brought me to, the deepest gratitude, for her kind and careful teaching during the short time I was in her father's house first gave me the ambition and the hope to learn, and spite of my degraded condition, I have never lost sight of it. And this it is, which, if anything can, may reconcile me to presenting myself as a poor shepherd-boy before my well-taught brother. You are right there, Michael, replied Mr. Bell. 
it is very clear to me that you have profited greatly by the feelings so inspired, notwithstanding the adverse circumstances in which you were placed during the four terrible years passed in the deep valley. And such feelings, I can tell you, will make a vast difference in the degree of happiness you are likely to enjoy in a reunion with your brother. And to Fanny Fletcher, too, said Michael, with the eagerness of reviving hope heightening his color and darting its brightness from his eye. To Fanny Fletcher, too, I owe the suggestion of thoughts which have saved me from being too utterly degraded to meet her again with pleasure. It is to Martha Dowling, surely, that I owe all the little book-learning I have been able to acquire, as well as the power of writing down the thoughts and meditations to which it has given rise. But it was Fanny who made me feel that, however lowly our condition and state on earth, we may yet retain as good a right as many of the kings of it, to open our hearts before God and ask for His Spirit to help us. How many mornings have I watched the sun rise! How many evenings have I seen him set in glory behind the mountain tops, and thought as I lay amidst the heather, and worshipped his almighty Maker, that, but for her, I should never have known the comfort of loving and trusting, as well as of adoring him. It was that dear, patient little girl who taught me this, and perhaps I may yet live to thank her for it. I trust you will, my dear boy, replied Mr. Bell, touched with the earnest energy of the boy's manner. I trust you will, Michael. And if I mistake her not, she will receive such thanks as a very welcome reward for all the pain she took to comfort you. Such kindness as she showed you is indeed, quote, Twice blessed, it blesseth him that gives, and him that takes. And I doubt not that she, as well as yourself, has been the better for it, from that time to this. May I look once more at that drawing, sir? said Michael, with some little embarrassment. There it is, Michael, said the clergyman, smiling, and once more laying it before him. Were it not that I think you will soon see the dear originals, and that we shall not, I would ask my wife to give it to you. I think I shall learn every line and every shade of it by rote, said Michael, if I do but look at it a few minutes longer. There, sir, he added, after an earnest gaze and resigning it into his hands, I feel as if it were my own now. Then, after one deep sigh, he seemed to rouse himself, and, as if endeavouring to shake off some feeling that oppressed him, he said, But you have not told me yet, sir, the reason why Miss Brotherton calls my first benefactress poor Martha. I am sorry to say, replied Mr. Bell, that there are more reasons than one for applying that pitying epithet to Miss Martha Dowling. In the first place, she is greatly out of health, poor girl, and in the next, her father's affairs are said to be in a very tottering condition, in consequence of his having overloaded himself with a greater quantity of spun cotton than he can get any sale for. He is said to have lent out money, too, on some speculation which has not answered. And, in short, that it is rather a nice question whether he will be able to get through his difficulties or not. Another misfortune is that Sir Matthew, as soon as he possibly could after the death of his first wife, thought proper to marry the Lady Clarissa Shrimpton, who, strange to say, thought proper also to marry him. And it is said also that poor Miss Martha, who is the eldest of the daughters unmarried, is not permitted to enjoy much peace under the rule of her noble stepmother. Lady Clarissa Shrimpton, said Michael, with the air of one whom some long-lost image is brought back. Lady Clarissa Shrimpton? Why, surely, that was the name of the tall, thin woman who had to practice the laying her bony hand upon my unfortunate little head when the terrible play was about. I dare say it was, said Mr. Bell. 
but at any rate Lady Clarissa Shrimpton is now Lady Clarissa Dowling. Poor Miss Martha, and she is out of health, too. How can I manage to pay my duty to her, Mr. Bell, without running the risk of being recognized by Sir Matthew as the unfortunate boy who escaped from the Deep Valley? He would be able, I suppose, to make me serve out my time. I do not think he would attempt it just now, Michael, was the consolatory reply. Thank God, continued Mr. Bell, there has been a good deal said of late concerning the abominations of the Deep Valley factory, and I don't much think Sir Matthew Dowling would run the risk of having it proved that he had kidnapped a boy away to it in the style he managed you. I should have no fear whatever of your presenting yourself at Dowling Lodge. Only I think it is ten to one her ladyship will not let you get a sight of Miss Martha without her being present, unless you were to write a line to the young lady first, and then perhaps she might contrive it. Michael now rose to take his leave, offering with a fervor that was very touching his earnest thanks for the generous kindness with which he had been received. But he resisted all the hospitable efforts made to retain him as a guest. He had need, he said, to be alone, that he might bring his mind to such a state as should enable him to sustain the wonderful change in his prospects with something like fortitude and rational composure. There was more real kindness and true sympathy in the manner of accepting this excuse than the most pressing offers of hospitality could have shown. And Michael, after involuntarily kissing the hand stretched out to bid him farewell, took his departure from the clergyman's house, with a heart full of thankfulness to God and man. End of chapter 28